this section of Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 8, we kind of, uh, you know, have another uh, opportunity. Hmm, I hit that, didn't I? There we go. Okay. We're having another opportunity to uh, for Ezekiel to be taken by the Lord. Uh, and, and we're going to see what goes on with that. So chapter 8, verses okay. 1 to 4. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to, to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. All right, so he dates this carefully. It's about a year and two months after the previous date in chapter 3. Now, having the date recorded is going to be important because he's going to essentially predict that God's going to leave the temple, that is the prelude to Jerusalem's destruction. Having this dated will prove that this wasn't a prophecy after the fact or something like that. He, he did say these things before they ever happened. And... Uh, that he sees this vision of, of, of the Lord, uh, God's hand is upon him. He's there in front of the elders of the people. There's going to be a couple more times when the elders have come to Ezekiel and, and God's going to uh, work through Ezekiel. So at this point, God, he's got this man, this uh, celestial figure that's glowing and he grabs him by his hair. You would think that would have been a painful experience, but he doesn't say anything like that, so who knows. But he grabs him by his hair and just takes him, you know, kind of through the air, it looks like, to Jerusalem. And he's going to actually go on a tour, a temple tour. So he's taken to Jerusalem and to the north gate of the inner court at the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes the jealousy. All right, now you've got to think about this. So this idol jealousy, it's similar image to, to a, a pagan god. But but now think about what this would be like. Um, you know, some of us are, are married, and if you're not, you can imagine what it'd be like. And think about what you'd feel if your wife, you know, which would be a horrible circumstance, but if she started running around on you with some other guy, started developing this really close relationship with this guy, and this guy was who she asked to do things and who she wanted to spend time with, who she talked to, who she texted, who she, you know, all that. And then before you know it, she's got a big portrait of this guy right there in your living room. How would that make you feel? Jealous. Absolutely. Hey, you know, I mean, marriage is an exclusive thing. And I don't intend to share my wife with anybody else. And, and that's the way all of us would feel in that situation. But think about how God feels. God has a marriage covenant with his people. And for them to, you know, run around on him, and not just that, but to put this image of, of this God right there in his house. It's almost like having a statue. You know, it's more than just a portrait. 
you know, wow, no wonder he calls it the image, the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. Now, it's at that point, verse 4, that the glory of the God of Israel is there, just like what he'd seen before. Remember when he saw it before, the glory of God? So just like that. Now, now think about it. You've got this image to the, to the God, and you've got the glowing glory of God. Wouldn't that be a contrast? You know, think about the glory of God and how awesome that is. Think about this statue to this idol that's just there lifeless and dead. You know, wow. Why would you ever choose the image over the glory of God? So that's that's going to be helpful, I think, for uh, for Ezekiel to see. And what God's going to do, you ever seen these like wildlife programs? It's been years since I've seen them. I don't have a TV that works. But, but you know, where, where the guy goes into the wild and kind of in hushed tones starts talking about these animals because he doesn't want to, you know, alert them to the fact he's there. So he's close enough to film them, but talking low, the animal doesn't hear him. That's kind of what I'm imagining here. You know, Ezekiel's taken on this temple tour, but he's kind of like invisible. And so maybe he's talking quietly and nobody realizes he's there and he's able to actually describe what's going on without interfering with what's going on. All right? Comments or questions? All right, let's see what he sees. So, uh, five and six. And he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north is the altar. And the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what you are doing, what they are doing, the great abominations of the house of Israel? <coughs> Now, one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we think about their idolatry is that it's so much like our modern view of religion. There's a word that I've seen used a lot technically for what they had, the word syncretism. Syncretism is the idea that many different beliefs are all accepted and all kind of uh, looked upon as valid. And that was kind of their idea. This was all beliefs were good. All gods were good. Now this pluralism idea that, that we're, we're open and receptive and find truth and goodness in every kind of religious belief and system. That's what they had. That's not a new thing. Not just in our era. That's exactly the Israelites here. They worship God. Yes, God worship of God is good. That's wonderful. You know, they worship the idol. They worship the, the heavenly beings. They worship the creatures. They worship Tammuz. And we're going to see all kinds of worship here. This is a, this is a multi-faith experience. You know, and, and they've got it to where people of all different beliefs are welcome and encouraged in their temple. This is, this is just such a beautiful thing from the standpoint of people today, they would say. You know, it's a beautiful thing that all these different religious faiths can just exist harmoniously and we, we support all of them. You know, that's considered to be a real virtue. God didn't consider it to be a virtue here. You know, so he has Ezekiel see this idol of jealousy. And he says to Ezekiel, he says, son of man, do you see what they're doing? 
the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary the idea is they've let these idols blatantly invade God's house and it's leading God to get far away from there God's not going to tolerate that it would be like your wife having this huge portrait of her man in your living room I'm not going to stay there in that house and she's driving me away from there Either I kick her out or, you know, I go, whatever. But this is, we're not tolerating this. That's the way God sees it. They're driving me away. And, uh, and he said, but that's, you haven't seen anything yet. You know, this is kind of a stage, step by step tour. And they're actually going to get closer to the holy, holy, holies each step of the way. And it gets worse and worse. It's like, wow, you thought that was bad? Wait till you see the next thing. <laughs> Thoughts and comments. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly some things that are worse than others, that are more blatant, that are more corrupt, that are more abominable, and and you'll see that it gets worse. Jake. You can go deeper and deeper into depravity and get more and more corrupt and more and more hardened in that as well. Okay. All right, 7 to 13. <laughs> Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were seventy elders in the house of Israel, with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. Alright, so he has him dig through this wall into the, into the courtyard and he says, Go and watch. Go see what they're doing. And, and he sees, and there's all these um, animals that are carved onto the walls that they're worshiping. They've got the censer and the incense rising up to, to worship the creature, not the creator. And uh, among them, believe it or not, was Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, because we don't typically know a whole lot about characters from this era. But Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, came from a very fine, godly family. Shaphan, his father, 
was involved with Josiah's turning the nation back to God. Second Kings 22-23. He's got brothers that were very faithful. Uh, Ahikam was one of his brothers that protected Jeremiah in Jeremiah 26. There's another brother, Eliza, I think was his name, in Jeremiah 29 that Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles through <coughs> There's a brother in Jeremiah 26, um, uh, Gemariah, who's faithful to the Lord. Um, Gedaliah, the governor, was like a nephew. This is a good family. This is a, an outstanding family, and he's the black sheep spiritually. You would not expect to see Jazaniah there. You, you ever see that? You know, you, you see a family where, where it's just a really good family. And you've got, you know, grandpa's good, you know, the, the sons are good, the, the grandsons are good, you know, and just, just a, a tradition, almost a family heritage of spiritual strength. And, and you know maybe several people in the family. Then you run across this renegade. It was like just totally opposite of this spiritual family. I mean, that, that's what Jeremiah is seeing. Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, is involved in this. And, and he said, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They think I can't see them. Well, the fact that he keeps asking Ezekiel, do you see this? It's surely an indication that the Lord was seeing it. You know, he could certainly see them. In fact, you know, the only people who can't see it are the idols and images themselves who have eyes but can't see and ears coming out here and all that stuff he does in Psalm 115 and Psalm 135. So God is seeing what they're doing. And while he hasn't forsaken the land yet, their abominations are going to cause it to happen soon. Um, and he said, but you haven't, you haven't seen the, the, the whole of it yet. It gets worse. Thoughts and comments? Jason. Yeah, especially when you think about what the New Testament says about the temple today, uh, with us being the temple, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6. And you think about what's going on here with idols being carved on the inside of the temple. And this is the question, what kind of idols are carved on the inside of my temple, you know, since I'm the temple today? Uh, because a lot of times, because those idols are on the inside of my heart, I think no one can see them. Uh, but God can see them, and we're just as foolish as these guys here. Yes, and, you know, have you thought about what an idol would be? I mean, you think about, going back to our husband and wife analogy, even if there wasn't anything physical going on, if my wife always wanted to talk to this man, always called him when there was any ever anything exciting or anything tragic or anything that needed to happen, always turned to him, always wanted to be around him, always wanted to do stuff with him, even if there's nothing going on, the fact that she's so attached to him is an emotional betrayal. Do we ever do that? I mean, are we turning to things other than to the Lord for what we ought to be turning to the Lord for? Do we, do we show an attachment to whatever else it is? This is what my, this is what my go-to thing is. You know, it may be a person. It, it may be, 
you know, some some crutch, something we're dependent upon, maybe drugs or alcohol or or you know some activity or you can really anything that just sort of becomes the thing I'm most attached to, I'm the closest to. That's really my idol. If, if the Lord's not the most important thing in my life, what is? And am I not provoking the Lord to jealousy with my closeness to that thing? Other thoughts? Jake? Absolutely. God surely can see in his own temple. All right? Yes, Brian. Yeah, certainly they were not right that the Lord had forsaken the land yet because God's glory was there. But chapters 9, 10, and 11, God's glory is about to leave. They, they didn't intend this as a prediction, but their misbehavior was going to lead to this, ironically. Good. All right, how about 14 and 15? So he's there at the north entrance and he sees these women that were weeping for Tammuz. Now I know very little about pagan mythology. But what I understand is that Tammuz was considered to to die in the beginning of summer that led to heat and drought in the summer. And by their weeping and mourning and lamenting her, she'd come back to life in the fall that would bring the rain and the renewed vegetation and so forth. So this is just a pagan mythology sort of a thing. Right there in the temple, these women are going through this ritual mourning and lamentation for the death of this goddess that's responsible for the rain. You know, one of the things that we need to be careful about is that we not deify nature or created things. Um, sometimes we can almost make it like nature's a real person. When really we're just talking about God's consistent action in creation. We shouldn't describe divine power to natural forces and elements that are under the power of God. So just think about these things we're seeing, that image of jealousy, the 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 Images and engravings on the cave walls, on the temple walls, and and then the this, these women weeping uh, the death of Tammuz. All of this is occurring in the temple. You know, that's not where I go. I mean, you know, it. Can you imagine? You know, uh, the 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 kind of like the boldness, kind of like the 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 outrageousness of, of doing this. 
in the very house of God. Wow, that, that, that's just like, you know, spitting in his face. Thoughts and comments, yeah, Steve. No doubt, yeah, thinking about Leviticus and other passages with the uh, holiness of God. Wow, they've got, they've descended a long ways from there. Yeah, good point. Carl. Well, it's just like sometimes we almost deify nature and, and almost like nature has this power and, you know, we talk about mother nature and, and we can, we can begin to think instead of realizing that God's in control of the creation, we can begin to almost make nature into a person that, that we give too much, uh, you know, honor to. So we need to be careful that we don't cross over into, um, you know, deifying the creation. The creation is just what God's made. God's the one that runs it. Listen. Well, they've had a long history of idolatry. I mean, he's going to say later, they really hadn't gotten rid of their idols, not even when they were leaving Egypt. So I don't think they really ever totally overcame this, you know, unwillingness to put all their trust in the Lord and to have an exclusive attachment to him. And whenever we don't totally depend on and trust on in Him, or whenever we've got other things that start creeping into our life and taking over the role God should have. I mean, it's just like with a, a marriage. If we're going to keep our marriage exclusive and pure, we just don't develop those attachments outside of marriage. You know? You, I don't, I don't have extended personal conversations with a woman. I don't normally send a text to a woman. You know, I, I, we, I keep away from letting a relationship develop with something to be a rival to the Lord. That's what we, or to, the, to, to my wife. That's what we've got to do with the Lord. We don't let something else start occupying that close relationship that only the Lord should have to us. Steve. Yes. Amen. I think that's exactly right. Starts with the heart and regresses, digresses a step at a time. Yeah. Peterson. Okay, the question is, you know, if you're trying to read other literature, try to understand how people think, like Buddhist literature or whatever. I, I, I do believe we can uh, learn about and, and try to understand 
false religions and false philosophies, and that's not sinful. Paul had obviously done some reading and some heathen poets and things like that. I do think we need to be cautious about that. I mean, you know, are we really just trying to understand to be able to help people, or are we starting to develop an attachment? Personally, I find it really annoying to read a lot of garbage. It's just like, it's just, it's just, ah, it's just aggravating. So it's hard for me to make myself read very much of some of that stuff because it's just so nauseating. But no, I don't think in itself it's sinful to read something that's wrong. Okay. Yes, Johnny. Well, the question is, why did they keep turning back to idols when they knew God was real and with everything he'd done for them and all that? I mean, I think that's the thing. I think they lost their trust and faith in God. I think they started hedging their bets, thinking that you'd better invest in Baal if you want a good crop and things like that. They didn't, often they did not see the blessings as coming from God. In fact, Jeremiah 44 just the most outrageous thing in the world. They got to the point where they said that things had gone badly for them and gone into captivity because they quit worshiping the goddess, the queen of heaven. That's just outrageous. Wow. So they attributed their their, uh, punishment from the Lord to the fact that they quit worshiping this idol goddess. So... Just when God blesses, we've got to recognize that. We've got to see him as the source. When we don't, it tends to, you know, we, we, can, we can believe that it's not even him. It all comes back to our heart. Yeah, good thoughts. Austin. I think about, you know, when you talk about the married relationship and sort of going outside of it, there, there's also a sense of God has always established with his people reminders, memorials, things to, to bring them back. And that's the same thing. We need to turn to one another. We need to, to find newness with each other. We need to, to look for new things. So that's reading the Bible, that's remembering Christ. All of those things draw us back to the Lord. Yeah, good point. We've got to really invest in our relationship. So if you're in a marriage relationship, it's not just that you don't develop the closeness to somebody else, but you really invest in that closeness you have with each other. That, that's very important. And you, you build that, that closeness by, you know, uh, renewing your, your relationship, your heart, your love. And that's what we got to do with the Lord. If we don't, if we don't, um, you know, continue to build that closeness, it'll just kind of wane away. So that's, that's a good point. Good thoughts. Yeah, very good. Jake. Within ourselves, all people who 
deny God and take for granted his blessings. That there's this point where they say, well, no, I see all this stuff. And I, uh, you know, I can see how it can be created, but it's, it's either for me it's more convenient, it's better, I want to worship in whatever way it is. It's a selfish reason I'm going to start focusing on the creation of God. Yeah, Romans 1. When we don't glorify and honor God, this is where it leads to. Jaden. Uh, question of why can't you turn back to idols? Uh, another factor was that people who were in the nation in Exodus 34 that don't invite you to their sacrifices. And when you're there, they say, you know, you're marrying your kids together. So it starts with an invitation that's either dangerous, but people just don't Absolutely. Certainly, the Israelites being in the pagan world and allowing the Canaanites to be there, their intermarriage, their closeness to them, they started developing Canaanite ideas and practices, and you were influenced by the world around us a lot. Let's go ahead and do uh, 16 to 18. where the sun rises. So you got to get the visual on this one. You got these 25 men and they are bowing down toward the sun. Now, think about where the Lord is residing. Behind them. Do you get the picture of what the Lord's seeing as they bow down to the sun? You know, that's pretty disrespectful, right? You know, when you're on the south end of somebody bowing down north, that's not a very pleasant sight. I'm not at all sure what he means when he says in the end of 17, behold, they're putting the twig to their nose. But one interpretation of that is they were passing gas in the Lord's face. If that's not, that's certainly the 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 kind of thing he's trying to describe here. Can you imagine that image? They are just totally disrespectful of the Lord because they're worshiping all these other things. Now, by the time you get it done, they're worshiping this idol of jealousy and they're worshiping these animal figures that are carved on the walls and they're worshiping this uh, goddess uh, that's responsible for the rain and the fertility, and they're worshiping the sun, and isn't this beautiful that they can have all of these different uh, religions uh, here in the temple? That's what men would say today. We should not be ashamed to declare the exclusiveness of God. All other religion is wrong. 
It's not valid. It's not true. That yeah. makes us sound like we're bigoted and intolerant. And it's certainly not that we don't want to reach out and help those who are deceived by that. We do. But we take a stand. This is not just some other wonderful religious experience that's good for you. It's wrong. It's not true. There's only one God, and he's the only one that we ought to worship. And God says, I'm going to deal with them in wrath, and I'll have no pity. And even if they cry out to me, I'm not listening. God's heart will not overrule his head on this one. They, this is, they're, they're goners. This is too much. They provoked him too often. They've gotten too close. He's not, he's not tolerating this anymore. Thoughts and comments? Yes, Devin. Great point. First Kings 8, they would pray to the temple, look to the temple, see the temple is God's residence, look what they've turned the temple into. Sid? Some have felt the 25 is the 24 forces of priests and the high priests. Oh, wow. And if that's the case, I can't prove that, obviously, but if that's the case, it just makes all this that much worse. Yeah, well, that, I hadn't thought about that, but if that is the case, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Clint? I was just going to say, an inherent characteristic about truth is that it is narrow. Yes. I mean, so that's the challenge. You know, God either exists or he doesn't. You know, it can't be both. It's one or the other. Truth itself is narrow. It's that way with medicine. It's that way with anything. So, yeah. that's the challenge. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the very idea that we ought to just accept everything as valid and true, try that if you're computer programming. You know, well, I mean, why, why wouldn't this command work as well as that one? Why can't I write this in, you know, language my own way? You know, hey, you get off. I mean, you just type your email address one letter wrong. Does it work? Boy, that's narrow. That's, uh, you know, well, <laughs> you know, that's the way things work in real life. It's the way it works with the Lord as well. Jake. Uh, it gets to the point where it seems that they're daring God. I think that's kind of his attitude. Like, it's like they're daring. It's like they're almost wanting to try to do something with how far they're taking this. Yeah. And, um, and what you mentioned earlier with our bodies not being the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit, you know, Paul talks about, you know, if you defile the temple, you look at what the, the sins were, or what the consequences to the sins were committed in the temple. You know, God can't put the temple very seriously. Like, what are we doing today with our temple? How are we going to do it? Yeah, good point. This was clearly a major affront to God. But if you think about, we are God's temple. God dwells in us. What does He think when we use our bodies for? outrageous things that provoke him. It's good, good thought. Yeah. So, this has consequences. And that's chapter 9. Somebody want to read chapter 9? 